Let me ask you a question. What brings you joy? I want you to think about the things, the people, the moments that have brought you the deepest delight. In our passage this morning in Luke's Gospel, we get a one-of-a-kind glimpse. It's the only place in the entire Bible where we are told what brings Jesus joy. Maybe you've seen one of those pictures of Jesus laughing. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered about those pictures. Um, if you read the New Testament, you don't really get the impression that Jesus went around laughing everywhere He went. But Jesus' life was, in fact, marked by deep joy. After all, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary. And it was the Holy Spirit who rested on Jesus like a dove at His baptism. And it was the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus His entire ministry. In fact, the whole point of Jesus' life and ministry was to impart his, to His people His joy that existed eternally between Him and His Father and the Holy Spirit. In fact, He says in John 15 to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And the only place in the entire Bible where we are told exactly what Jesus rejoices in is right here in Luke's Gospel passage. So that's what I want to look at with you this morning. What brings Jesus joy? And along with that, how can we come to share in His abundant joy? So to do that, we're going to spend most of our time just in verses 17 through 24. We're not going through the whole 24 verses there. Just 17 through 24 of Luke chapter 10. Joy is the golden thread that runs through these verses. And in these verses, we are told of two things that bring Jesus joy. The first comes when He shares in the joy of His 72 disciples, and the second is when He speaks about an even greater joy, the greatest joy that there can be. So first look with me at verse 17, and let's see the first thing that brings Jesus joy. It says that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Their mission had been a success, and that brought them joy. These 72 uh, disciples were a separate group. They were a larger group, obviously, than the 12 disciples that we commonly think of. But both the 12 and the 72 were sent out on mission. The 12 in Luke 9, just a chapter earlier, and the 72 here in Luke 10. And the point of this second larger mission is that ministry is not just for a select few of Jesus' disciples. No, it's, it's for every Christian. Every Christian is a minister of the Gospel and a witness to Jesus Christ. Everyone is a follower uh, who is a follower of Jesus has a vital role to play in Jesus' mission. And the mission that these 72 were sent on was to go ahead of Jesus and to prepare the way for Him by doing one basic thing. To proclaim that the Kingdom of God has come near. They were to preach about the kingdom of God, and they were to then display the kingdom by healing the sick. Their mission involved word and deed. Both were essential. And Christians can't separate these two. The preaching and, and service, they always must go together. 
Well, these 72 had been warned by Jesus that their mission was going to involve great risk. He said to them, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He didn't want them to have some sort of Pollyannish naivete about how they would be treated in their mission. He warned them that there would be many who would reject them and and their message about the kingdom. And this has always been the case for ministry uh, for Jesus' disciples because it was the case for Jesus Himself. The message of the kingdom of God has always been offensive to the heart of man. And that's because the message of the kingdom is actually that there is a king who is ruling right now and you and I are not him. It was Abraham Kuyper who rightly said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus Christ doesn't exclaim, mine. He lays rightful claim to your entire life, your family, your bank account, your body, your sexuality, your talents, your relationships. It all belongs to Him. But man, from the very beginning, believed the lie that submitting to this king would be their demise. They believed the lie that this king created them simply to keep them under his thumb. And what they actually needed to do was to to get out from underneath this yoke and to cast off the shackles of being bound to him and to go their own way and become their own masters. The human heart from the very beginning has been prone to believe the age-old lie that life is all about us and our body and our choice. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. The message of the kingdom of God is offensive because it says that you are not your own. Instead, you belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. And you are to present your heart, your mind, and every single part of your body as an instrument of righteousness in His service. So Jesus prepared these 72 for the inevitable rejection that they would uh, come and proclaiming that the true King is here and He is settling accounts. And He told them that it would not go well for those who reject them and their message. But nevertheless, in the face of such opposition, Jesus had told them that God would protect them and provide for their needs. And He also told them that there would be some who would receive them. And it's those people who will come to enjoy the perfect peace and freedom that exists in the kingdom of God. So they were to have some measure of of hope regarding this mission. Well, apparently they, they went out and it was a tremendous success. They healed the sick and people believed their message and they couldn't believe the power and authority that they had in Jesus' name. And so they couldn't wait to get back and tell Jesus all about it. And as they came to Him, they they burst out in joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And Jesus responds with this rather enigmatic, enigmatic statement, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What are we to make of that? What does that mean? Well, Jesus here is putting the disciples' work of preaching and healing in their proper heavenly perspective. It might be easy for them to think that what they were doing out there on the mission field was small and insignificant. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, you probably know the feeling. They were simply a small group of disciples 
who uh, were disciples of a first century Middle Eastern itinerant preacher. And many folks had rejected their message. And it would have been really easy for them to think that what they were doing was not all that big of a deal. But Jesus wants them to see that what they were doing from a heaven's perspective was amazing. They're preaching, they're healing the sick, the casting out of demons from heaven's vantage point was nothing short than the overthrow of Satan himself. It's as if Jesus says, while you were out there in the trenches healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God, I saw what was really going on. I saw Satan fall like lightning. His kingdom was being overthrown. You can almost see the smile of of Jesus when he says that he saw Satan fall like lightning while they were out on mission. He is joining in on the joy of his disciples here. In the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, it spells doom for Satan. And it's the first thing that causes great joy for Jesus. He continues by saying, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Let me be crystal clear here. Jesus is not telling His followers to go out and handle snakes as some sort of authenticating proof of their discipleship. Nowhere is that commanded or even seen in the New Testament or practiced in the early church. Instead, what he's saying is that they can be assured that this is not some sort of one-and-done experience. They can be assured that as they continue on following Jesus, that His power and authority will continue on as well. They will continue to experience His protection and Satan will not be able to snatch them out of the hand of their Father. What great encouragement and and a wellspring of joy for these disciples knowing that they can expect more of this in the future. For these disciples, the fact that they get to participate in Jesus' work of overthrowing Satan, that they get to continue on in this privileged work of advancing the kingdom of God was grounds for great joy. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're wondering about this whole Christianity thing, You need to know this, that being a disciple of Jesus, contrary to what some might think, is not some dull, trifling enterprise. Seeking to follow Him on His mission is a thrilling, joy-filled experience. Jesus isn't some tyrant whose law is like a straitjacket on your life. Rather, He's our good King and Shepherd who leads us into pleasant pastures and he runs after lost sheep and he instructs us on how we can most flourish in his world. Submission to this king is not slavery, no matter what the world says. Instead, it's just the opposite. Being in his service is where true freedom and joy is to be found. So the first thing that brought both Jesus and His disciples joy was the delight of ministry in His name in advancing the kingdom of God. But as great as that joy is, there's an even greater one, one that Jesus desperately wants you and I and His followers to have. And that brings us to the second thing that brings Jesus joy. Jesus says, starting in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, He rejoiced 
and the Holy Spirit. The disciples were overjoyed at the honor of participating in Jesus' mission, and they were amazed at the power they possessed as His representatives. But Jesus tells them that there's an even greater joy to be had. The joy that comes from knowing that your name is written in heaven. Jesus tells His disciples not to look to their power or their ministry success or any sort of achievement for the ultimate ground of their joy. And He tells them, don't look at your gifts, but look to God's grace if you want real joy. You see, even once you become a disciple of Jesus, you can still be tempted to put your joy, to look for joy in things that ebb and flow. Uh, These disciples needed to know that ministry success, it comes and goes. Sometimes people will receive you, sometimes people will reject you. You see mountaintop experiences like this short-term mission trip that they went out on. uh, These can bring great joy one minute, but then when it's over, so too is the joy. Jesus doesn't want His disciples' joy to be left to chance by placing it in some sort of experience. Jesus knew that it would be exceedingly easy for His followers to find their joy in the work that they have done for the kingdom. And that's why Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't rejoice in what's been done through you. Rejoice what's been done for you. Jesus uh, rejoicing that God has taken notice of you, that your name is written in the King's register, that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. That's what Jesus wants you to find the greatest joy there is in. That's the unfading imperishable, solid joy that's out there. And this is what Jesus wants His followers so desperately to have. It's the only thing that we're explicitly told Jesus rejoices in, in all of Scripture. What brings Jesus joy is the unconditional, secure salvation of His people. And so He can't help but burst out in gratitude to His Father, saying, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. The very thought that the King of heaven and earth has written the names of His people in the book of life causes Jesus to erupt with joy on the spot. Specifically, He rejoices in the way that God saves His people. Salvation, it doesn't come to people on the basis of their merit. You don't have to get a certain SAT score to get into heaven. Salvation is hidden from those who trust that they bring even the slightest thing to the table. Instead, salvation is revealed to those little children. Literally, it's little babies. I currently have a seven-month-old in my own home right now, and so the nature of little babies is fresh on my mind, and I think there are really only about three things that that babies can actually do. They can hurt themselves, they can make messes, and they can cry. That's pretty much what they can do. Babies are utterly helpless in themselves. All they know is their need. And that's the way the joy of salvation comes, Jesus says. You have to come to realize that you bring nothing to God except your need. That's why salvation is harder for the wise, for the successful, for the rich. They're the last ones to lay down their achievements. 
But Jesus is saying that salvation is not something that can be attained. It has to be received. It's all a gift of grace. And that's precisely where Jesus wants His disciples to look in order to find their greatest joy. And this joy always comes back to Jesus' cross. That's where God's all-sufficient and unmerited grace is extended to you and me when we deserve, in fact, just the opposite. Our rags are exchanged at the cross for Jesus' riches. His death is our life. But it only comes to those who see their need. Only to little babes. My friends, let me close with this. What is it that you are rejoicing in today? What are you looking for joy? Is it in your experiences? Is it in your successes or your relationships? Well, Jesus wants your joy to be full and He knows that it comes only by seeing the wonder of His grace and that your names are written in God's book. You might be saying, well, that's, that's great, Justin, but how can I know that my name is written in that book? And the only way to know to get your name in, in the King's book in heaven is to stop trying to write it in yourself. You and I are not able or, or worthy to, to go up and to open that book and write it in. But there is one who is. The Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, He is worthy to open it. And thanks be to God that He has written your name in there, not in some ink that can fade away, but with His most precious blood, which can never be blotted out. All we are to do is to depend on Him like a little child. My friends, these are the solid joys that Jesus has and that you can have. If you've never tasted them, they are on offer for you right now. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote in his great little book, Mere Christianity, there's no other way to happiness for which, the happiness for which we were made. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. The whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can come to share in the life of Jesus Christ. My friends, joy is at the heart of Jesus. There is joy in living for Him as His disciple, and there is supreme joy, everlasting joy in being known by Him and loved by Him. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May it be so, Lord Jesus.